Science is the great antidote to the poison of enthusiasm and superstition. Hi, I'm Juliette Selgren, and this is my podcast, The Great Antidote, named for Adam Smith, brought to you by Liberty Fund. To learn more, visit www.adamsmithworks.org. Welcome back. A little while ago, I had Ben Klutze on the podcast to talk about Undivide Us, a brilliant documentary about affective polarization in America and practical steps towards fixing it. Steps that any individual or organization can use to have deep, thoughtful conversations about current events and policy and things that matter in America and to ourselves that aren't argumentative or friendship ending. Today, on January 13th, 2024, it is the 13th, right? Yeah. <laughs> Actually, <laughs> last, it's, last it's, time 13, I it's 13, 13 on January 13th. <laughs> it is. At least where it I is. Am. <laughs> <laughs> I'm excited to welcome Christy Kendall onto the podcast. You hear her already. Another mastermind behind this documentary. She is the director of the film, so I'm really excited to get into this today. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. So this is the question I ask everyone. So I'm, I'm excited to see what you have to say. What is the most important thing that people my age or in my generation should know that we don't? I mean, I think the most important thing that you should know that you don't is that um, the media narrative around toxic polarization is really overblown and that you actually, that you, um, you know, because I think people your age have a lot of fear around um, talking about uh, controversial issues with people on the other side of issues. And uh, so I think the most important thing you can know is that Everybody feels that way, and most people are normal and want to have conversations, even if they disagree with with you. And so you call it toxic polarization, but Ben says affective polarization, but then there's also regular polarization. Can you? Yeah. What do you mean when you say that? Like, so what I, is? I mean the same thing as Ben does. I just think affective is like a highfalutin word, and I think. <laughs> toxic is like more like people know what I'm saying when I say toxic polarization. So, you know, we, I love Ben, so don't get me wrong. He's amazing, but you know, he's kind of, he's super smart. I'm just regular smart. So like I'll let him use the big words. Um, and I, I always say toxic polarization because I actually think regular polarization is fine. Polarization just means like we view things differently, like on the poll, like some people are pro-gun, some people are anti-gun, and most of us are like somewhere in between. And most issues are like that in America. Um, and, and that's fine to me. And I think what Ben means by this too is the toxic polarization means the kind of polarization where you actually look at people on the other side of the issue and you think that they are unworthy of the benefits of citizenship. You think that they are stupid, that they like, that they just shouldn't even be involved and that they should be silenced. And that kind of toxic polarization is the polarization that I'm, is the kind of polarization that I'm worried about. Regular polarization I'm fine with, you know, we've been disagreeing as Americans since like our founding, you know, Thomas Jefferson and Alexander Hamilton pretty much hated each other's guts, but like that was okay. They wanted there to be a democracy that could deal with that kind of disagreement. And mostly through our history, with the exception of the civil war, we've like, 
we've achieved that pretty well. Um, I just think right now there's a real narrative in American politics that, um, that, that, that we are like more polarized than ever. And, and, and that narrative can make us shut up and not talk to one another. And, and then it just becomes like this vicious cycle of like sadness where we think we can't speak up and that's not good. And we're, we're going to get more into this, um, as, and how real this is as a reality. If we really need this divide, which obviously given the title undivide us, maybe we don't. Um, but can you give us, I know I gave like a shoddy explanation of what the, the film is about, but can you explain to us what, um, what it's about, what you were trying to do, how you did it? Totally. So the film is, um, you know, it's a full length documentary. It's about about 72 or three minutes. Um, it basically takes you on a journey. Ben is one of the guides, this other guy named Tony Woodleaf, um, who wrote a book called I citizen is kind of your other like intrepid explorer of this polarized landscape. And they go on a journey where they, we do focus groups in three American cities on the craziest, like hardest topics we could think of, you know, immigration, guns, abortion, whether we have fair elections in this country, the environment, um, and policing. Uh, we talk about all these things with regular Americans who aren't like, who feel strongly about the issue on one side or the other. And, um, and what we actually find is, um, that, that people, can and do have these conversations. We had, we had no fistfights anywhere in all the, in all the tapings of all these focus groups. Um, and the, one of the crazy things that we found is that like afterwards, um, people just wanted to keep talking. They, they had almost had like a cathartic experience. Um, we were surprised by that. We weren't, we weren't expecting to find that. Um, and it, uh, it was so hopeful and inspiring. Um, I don't know. I was just, I was really excited that that's, that that's where we landed and that that's what we got to share with, um, in the movie, but but going in, we didn't know that's what we were going to find. We, we, we had a theory, but, but we weren't sure. So a lot of questions stemming from this. Were you, were you optimistic at the beginning, but unsure? Yeah. And then kind of became, more optimistic? Yeah. I mean, how did it I change? I got like more, I got more bullish on like how strongly I felt after the first one, but going into the first one, our first focus groups were in Atlanta and they were having, we were going to talk about policing and they were having, um, they were having incredible protests in Atlanta at that time around policing. Like there were firebombing the, they, they called it police city in Atlanta. Um, uh, the, the focus group company actually called kind of, we called an emergency meeting about 48 hours before, before shooting the first focus group because we were, they were nervous and rightly so, you know, I mean, we're, we're not immune to these media narratives either. Right. And if what we're seeing and, you know, they're sending articles around, did you see this? Did you see this? Um, and you know, they're like, should we cancel? And, um, you know, I, 
I, of course, like I, I have an obligation to the folks who are working on the film, right? Like I, I take their concerns seriously. And so I, I looked into it and, um, talked to people on the ground about what they were actually seeing, how there was, what was really happening. And I made the call that we should, we're going to just move forward. Um, we're going to go forward as planned. And, um, and it always a hundred percent fine, but the anxiety going into it. I mean, we experienced that firsthand. That was real. And I think it's kind <laughs> of a metaphor for the film actually. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I think honestly, the results, I don't want to say proved you wrong, but yeah, but proved you wrong in, in the good, in the good, in the best way. Maybe. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. Totally. Um, you know, if we had, if we had canceled it, I mean, it would have been the wrong call in terms of like the practicality of what was actually happening on the ground. We literally would have fallen prey to the same thing that we're trying to warn people about in the film, right? Which is that, you know, when you look around at your, at the real people around you, the communities on the ground, your neighbors, your friends with you, they're still human beings, you know, they have a reason for thinking why they think they, what, what they think. And, and they're not bad people. If they disagree with you, they just might have a different, you know, way of going about something or, you know, all, all the things that we know when we think about our actual relationships with actual human beings. If the, if the results of the focus groups and kind of this experiment is, is mm -hmm. the way Ben refers to it. And I think yeah, that that's yeah. kind of a lovely way to talk about it. Um, yeah. If it had gone differently, yeah. um, would you oh. still have published the movie and maybe how would it have changed the resulting production? Well, I mean, if you think like, okay, so let's say one of the, like, let's say one of the focus groups had exploded, right? Because like there were a few people in there that really um, were not capable of recognizing the humanity of people on the other side of the machine, right? Like, let's say that had happened. Um, I mean, I think what I would have done is I would have wanted to investigate that more thoroughly. Like, you know, the, if, if there was a person who kind of really made that happen, why did that, why, why did they feel like that way? You know, because I, I think, I just, I don't believe most human beings have things happen in, in isolation, you know, for someone to be that angry, if to, to really, um, to dehumanize someone on the other side of an issue, um, I, there's usually, I think there's probably usually a story. There's some kind of pain behind that, some kind of, um, something to uncover. I, I know I sound like I'm so Pollyanna ishy, but like, I'm, I'm legitimately curious about human beings and like what goes on underneath and behind them that I, I would have probably just wanted to investigate more. It would have been a, and it would have turned in, it would have definitely made it into the documentary and probably just been an interesting turn, you know? Um, Cause I just think I, I come at this from this perspective that like we can learn, we can learn from our fellow human beings, you know, from, from, from our pain, from our life experiences, from our journeys that have brought us to where we are and, and our hopes for where we want to go. Um, I'm like, I'm just legitimately curious about the human experience. And now I want to take this in so many different directions, but I'm going <laughs> to, I have a, an order that I think will be 
chronologically okay, but I'm going to pursue all of them at once. Um, <laughs> you sound like you sound like such a journalist, um, which is maybe me planting this word okay, here on purpose. A, that is a fair um, critique. <laughs> that's, that is and, no, but not, not, not in a bad way, right? <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. And so I'm, I'm going to now ask you in the way that I asked Ben, and, and you see in the movie the way that Ben kind of came to these questions and came to yeah. seeing that this was important. But how did you get drawn to this issue how did it become such an important issue in your life that mm. it's the response to your first question or to my first question to you and that you make a movie about it? Um, and I kind of, I, I don't know if you want to separate it or if you want to put it all together, but what is the career path that led you here? And also, I guess, the the political philo- philosophical journey, I think they're all kind of related, but yeah, a little autobiography moment. So my background was, I, I was a producer at ABC News 2020 uh, for many, many years. And I was then I was John Stossel's executive producer at Fox News and Fox Business, where I ran his weekly show and also did um, like a lot, a dozens of documentary hours that would run on both channels, both for Stossel and other folks. Um, and, and then I did some movie stuff in like the narrative space. But I always had this real love of like true human stories and how they, how we could be, how if we could connect a story to some intellectual facts that actually like, so like, let's say there's a trend, um, any trend that we want to like talk about or think about is going to be more moving to an audience if you can connect a human story so that emotionally you can actually see and feel what it is that that, that, that trend. And, and I feel that, like that's kind of the responsibility of journalists is to actually try to make sure that what we're reflecting in terms of how we're trying to move people emotionally um, and connect people to human stories are actually, I think part of our responsibility is to make sure it's reflective of actual trends that exist. And so, I mean, that was how I approached. So, so I'm, I'm in that world. I'm, I'm doing this kind of thing, but, um, wait, so, so, so I was doing that. I have my own like little company where I, where I do video projects. Um, and I do a lot of like communications trainings and I I do things like that. Um, and I was observing kind of this political polarization, you know, this like, I wouldn't even call it like, I wasn't even thinking about it as toxic polarization. I was just viewing it as like this screaming that was happening all over my Facebook page with, with my own family, like where people weren't talking to one another, um, where people were like, if you voted for this person, please unfriend me, you know, and on my Facebook page. And I was like, what is going on? Um, and then I went to, um, I ran into Tracy Sharp, um, who is the president of the State Policy Network. And she told me about the book that Tony Woodley, because I think you're going to be shocked at some of the data that Tony presents. And so I was like, okay, I'm going to read a book. Um, and <laughs> so I read, I read Tony's book. And um, the most incredible thing kind of I took away from it is he has all this great data and studies, but he points out that there is this there is this perception amongst Americans that we um, 
are toxically polarized. And it's interesting. We put this in the the focus group as well. You know, uh, I think it's around like Americans, over 50% of Americans think that like Americans believe regular Americans believe that like over 50% of people are toxically polarized, which is totally not true. It's, it's much closer to 20%. Um, but because we have this perception that the majority of people are toxically polarized is defined as like not able to talk to people who, with whom they disagree. Um, then if you believe that about your fellow citizens, you aren't going to engage in local citizenship in the way that we want people to, you know, in order to have like a robust democratic, you know, in order to have robust democratic institutions. Um, so, so reading this book, but I was kind of like, I was struck by this fact and I was like, well, wait, so basically we're all suffering from this like collective delusion basically around around how, how toxically polarized we are. Why don't we tell and show people the truth? Um, and I don't, I mean, I love Tony's book, but I don't think people are going to read a, a book and, and have their minds changed. Um, I mean, I don't even think they're going to see a movie, but I do think movies have a, are, are, are more viral, um, and can spur more conversations. Um, I just, I mean, Honestly, I don't think any one thing is going to fix it all. But like, I just think we need to do whatever we can to get this out there that like, no, 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 we're not as all angry and willing to jump down our throats, the throats of our fellow citizen as, as, as the media might have you think. Um, and so that was what brought me to this movie is that was a really long answer, Julia. <laughs> that, no, that, that was that, wonderful. That was the journey you wanted. <laughs> That was wonderful. And while you were doing that, my cat came and took a nice little seat on my lap and mm. um, is also listening to you. Wait, so. the little cat or the big cat? <laughs> the little cat. <laughs> oh, my God. So cute. Yeah. You know, they were hunting for something under your refrigerator last time I was there. Yeah, whatever it is is still there. We're not we're not quite sure <laughs> what it is they, they think is under there. Um Either it's not gone or it has a family or something, but it hasn't left. So we'll see. I hope, it, I hope whatever it is, is very clean and tidy. Yeah. I mean, it, it seems to be at least. From, it doesn't smell. So. It doesn't smell and it doesn't leave little poop pellets. I think you're okay. Yeah. So like it hasn't died and it isn't hoarding or like discarding things, um, which That's is awesome. good. I think then it's allowed to stay under the fridge, especially if it entertains the cats, which entertain us. Um, (laughs) You guys have like the non-aggression principle going on. I like it. (laughs) Yeah. Um, While you were telling your story and kind of giving us this, this overview of how you got here, you mentioned a lot of different titles and kind of aspects of filmmaking and to get Mm -hmm. into more Mm -hmm. what your role was um, in the production. I kind of want to draw some clear lines or like definitions between the different roles and to kind of, if you could tell us what you did in this, in this capacity. Totally. So, I mean, a director is really the person who is responsible for the whole vision of the, of the film, you know, kind of from soup to nuts, like what are the issues that are going to be addressed? Who are we going to talk to? What's the look going to be? Um, 
Although, I mean, I rely really heavily on Casey Kirby, who is the director of photography. Um, so he's like the lead camera person on everything. And then Casey also is, he's just an incredible human. He also edited the film. And I really like that division of labor because a lot of times in my experience, you could have someone in the field who would shoot something, I mean, film something, and then it would be like, you get back to the edit room and the editor is like, well, why'd you do it like this? <laughs> so it kind of yeah. makes it so, you know, the same person is responsible. And Casey is, we're just, I'm just really fortunate to have him because he is so talented on both of those things. Um, in terms of the production, you know, a producer is responsible for really everything from, you know, helping with the bookings, helping with the locations, helping make sure all the contracts are in order. Um, to the fundraising side of things, which is, you know, a, a tough slog of things to all the hundred million different details that need to get, you know, the I's that need to get dotted and the T's that need to get crossed in order to have a documentary actually make it. Um, and so there was, there were, I, I was a producer on this film too, cause that's kind of my background at being like super detail oriented, but then um, Morgan Twist Garvey and um, Carrie Conco were the other two producers. And, um, Basically, without any of the four of us, um, me and Casey and Morgan and Carrie, this movie would not have gotten made. <laughs> it's just like so much work. I mean, Tony and Ben were, um, they were amazing talent and incredible, but, um, you know, they, they don't have to do all the work of like making sure that everything goes well. They're just like, oh, okay, I'm going to show up. Here's, and I'll, I'll put my, my magic in it. That's kind of, I mean, that's, that's how I divide the labor for, um, for, for a film. And there were, there are many other people who contributed to the film just through, through feedback or through, you know, the music or the, there's a, there's a, so many jobs that go into making a movie. That's why I had told that I actually, I'd, I had, I had never, I had thought I would never make a documentary because it is, it is so much work. Um, but this documentary and the team around me were so wonderful. I actually, I think I might even do another one. It's, it's, it's great. It was great. Do you have any ideas for what you would do next? Oh, just... <gasps> uh, no. I mean, I do. I have some, but I'm going to keep those close for now. Yeah. Because <laughs> you never know. <laughs> you never know. Like, um, I don't want to jinx anything. <laughs> that makes sense. Um, so when you're 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 starting uh this sort of production how does the the how how are the decisions made mm -hmm. um for how a certain scene or um aspect of the film is going to be portrayed how how um thoughtful do you have to be about the reception and who the audience is mm -hmm. and how you want to communicate a certain idea yeah. I mean, I think it's an imperfect process, you know, of constant, you know, editing it one way, seeing how that lands, then also seeing, okay, what does that, um, uh, if I try that with, if I let a few other people watch it, are they walking around, are, are they walking away with the right impression of, of what was said? You know, I mean, we're shooting, we probably shot hundreds of hours of, of, footage right for this for this documentary um and yeah and what you see is 72 to 73 minutes and it's actually really really important to me from a journalistic standpoint that 
what is reflected on the screen is an accurate portrayal of what actually happened if you if you if you watched more now you, um, watching focus groups is um, not something that I would recommend to most people. It's pretty boring. But when you watch it edited for like the most salient parts and the best takeaways, then suddenly it becomes more interesting. Um, we also, I also try to put it into context with um, some great subject matter experts that we had for this film. Um, and we really leaned, I leaned heavily on Ben and his expertise from at, at the Center for Pluralism because he really knows like who are the most interesting folks. And, and there were a few people who we, we, um, we probably could have talked to even a few, a few more people, but then we would have had to include everyone in the documentary. And then you would have gone to sleep in the middle of it because you would have <laughs> seen all the subject matter experts. Um, but I think that the folks who we, we did end up talking to, they all kind of lend different uh, nuggets of expertise um, into the film. And, and they've all, they've all seen the film and, and they're all, they're all pretty excited about it. So, I, about the focus groups, mm-hmm. how were the people chosen <clears throat> yeah. to participate, right? Because I, I don't know. Yeah. Well, so we actually tried to keep folks out who were toxic, like who we would define as toxically um, polarized. And the way that we defined that is we asked them, um, we asked them two questions in specific around, and we asked them to like rate from a, a, a zero to 10, whether, um, whether they thought they could be friends with someone who disagreed them uh, with them about an issue, for example. And if they rated that as a nine or a 10, um, and then the other question had to do, it was a similar question along those lines. If they rated both of those questions as nines or tens, we didn't include them in the focus group. Um, because if you can't even imagine like being friends with somebody who disagrees with you about something that um, that's kind of, not a great sign, I think, in terms of, of, of whether you're going to be able to have a productive conversation. Um, <clears throat> so that was part of it. We also looked for people, you know, we, we tried to look for people who were reflective of the communities we were going to be in. And we were in um, largely purple communities, meaning that they're, they, they were neither um, strong Republican or Democrat communities. And they were all places where they had had... Um, election controversy in like in the in the in the past year um phoenix atlanta and pittsburgh and um and uh so we just we looked for people who you know you don't want six people who all are gonna say oh well we agree about everything we looked for people who had relatively strong views on the topics we were going to talk about um and we looked for you know diversity of races genders political parties all those things. Cause we were, we were trying to kind of have the, have folks look, look and feel like regular people who you would meet, you know? Yeah. And something I've been wondering about since I watched the movie, um, is this question of why, why were the interactions portrayed the ones that were chosen? Right. So if there mm-hmm. were so many hours of footage, yeah. um, how did you pick those ones? And especially there were some of the interactions where 
it wasn't that there wasn't disagreement, but the disagreement wasn't as extreme as I thought it, it could have been, right? If you picked yeah. two random people in America. <laughs> and and I think there's value there. But I'm yeah. kind of curious as to why you chose to even per- portray those moments instead of maybe more extreme moments in some cases. Yeah, there weren't, there really weren't a lot of really extreme mo- moments. So partially because of the way that we were you know, these were facilitated conversations, right? And you're at a table, there's cameras everywhere. You know, it's not set up so that people are going to, you know, so the people coming in were super nervous. I'll just say that. Like they all thought that there was going to be like, you know, one lady said, you know, she thought Jerry Springer was going to like jump out of the, of the, of the, of the, um, of the bushes. But like, I think that what it, I I think that there's a lot of lessons here that we can take about what, you know, what constitutes people who are going to be extreme. You know, I think like on cable news, there's an incentive structure where people will invite you back on, you get good ratings, you, you know, you generate more tweets and uh, there's a cycle of that. You know, if you say something extreme, you know, people being reasonable doesn't sell generally on Twitter. Although I was talking to Matt Kibbe the other day and he was like, well, that is all I'm trying to do on Twitter. And yes, it makes it harder, but I actually feel like I have integrity. And I was like, okay, that's awesome. Like I am super for that. Um, I know it's not called Twitter anymore. It's called X, whatever. Um, I feel like so Yeah, go ahead. (laughs) on a past podcast episode. I don't remember who I was talking to, but I think we decided that X is the the derogatory term for Twitter. (laughs) (laughs) And so everyone refers to it as Twitter unless they're kind of making fun of it or like annoyed. (laughs) I know. It's like it's so funny. It's like I even get those emails every once. You know, it's like here's what's happening on X. And I'm like, is this it feels like a joke. So. Right. I'll just, that's like a whole other conversation. <laughs> but, but so I, I think that we, you know, we see, we see that, but when you, when you actually have to be sitting at a table with another human being and, and, and look at them in the eye, it just changes the temperature, you know, it brings the temperature down. Um, and then, you know, the facilitators ask people to use this technique called triadic illumination, which is, you know, basically, um, I don't know, uh, Caleb Brown actually calls it the Turing test, basically where you, you try to put yourself in the other person's shoes. And can you actually articulate like what their position would be or why a reasonable person would have that position, the position that's opposite of the one that you agree with? Like, can you imagine why a reasonable, and when you have to do that as a human being, it, you automatically, you humanize the other person. You don't change your mind, interestingly enough, which is funny because, you know, people were, you would assume, oh, well, maybe people in your focus groups to change their minds about things. No, nobody changes their minds about anything. That I mean, I thought that was really interesting. But what they do is they change their mind about how they feel about the people on the other side of the issue. They suddenly have more of a face and a name and you know, most human beings don't want to be jerks. Most people want to, you know, be nice and be part of civil society. Like we're kind of hardwired like that, right? As human beings. Um, and so I just think we have to, 
we have to give more light to our better angels and, 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 and do that. And that's, I mean, that's what I learned through these focus groups. Um, and so, you know, you would think what you're asking, you know, were there more like angry moments and you just didn't include them there? There really weren't. I tried to include the moments that, um, like the gun conversation, for example, I really, I wanted to include that because it really showed how, I mean, that could have been a hot mess, right? Like it was four on one, like four people all were like, yeah, we don't think guns are good. And one guy in the middle standing stepping up and saying like, you know, I, I, um, I think guns do more good than harm. That, that could have been a mess, but it, it ended up in a good place. And I, I swear I didn't make that up. <laughs> it really happened that way. Yeah. And I think, honestly, there's something about that moment where even though, um, I don't remember what the woman's name is. That Felicia. He, that, Felicia. Yeah, yeah, that, yeah. They're, they're engaging on this front. And first, she's she says that she does have a gun, even though she's kind of against gun ownership. Um, she's in against an ideal gun world. ownership for stupid people. Yeah. Yeah. yeah um, <laughs> it's, it's interesting because I think kind of the first time I saw it and like my, my gut impulse was like, oh, well, this is interesting because she owns a gun. Mm-hmm. But then also kind of thinking about it in the greater context of the conversation, I don't think I would go into that sort of conversation expecting there to be so many people maybe against my viewpoint and the other people being respectful enough not to jump in. I think yeah. that's honestly part of the most shocking. The thing is, the the conversation was so respectful yeah. that you almost don't even notice how weird it is <laughs> if you would put yourself in going into right. that conversation. I would expect the other people to jump in and be like, no, screw you. Like, you're wrong. Right. But no. the other three people were just sitting there listening. Yeah. And that to me right now is really um, surprising me for some reason. Surprising yeah. in a good way. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, I think, again, I, I, I just think that we we are capable of more than maybe our, um, you know, the the bubbles that we're all living in would, would lead us to believe we're more capable of, of goodness than, than maybe, than maybe, um, the media would have us believe. Yeah. Um, and so I guess you, you said earlier that there was, there was part of your reluctance to do a full length documentary was that it, it involved so much work (laughs) and that that is not just, the actual creation of the documentary, but everything that happens to get it out there and mm-hmm. to promote it. So what else have you been doing and what else does that involve other than creating the documentary itself? Yeah. So we, um, we have a whole impact campaign. Um, we're hosting screenings all over the country. Go to, um, Juliet, I fully expect you to be hosting a screening at uh, UVA. Go to... Uh, uh, I already <laughs> am on that. <laughs> sweet, sweet. So uh, people go to undividedusmovie.com. Um, they can sign up to host a screening. We actually just launched this respect pledge, pledge for respect that we're trying to get people to sign on to um, because people were saying, hey, is there, is there more that that I can do to kind of show this on, on social media, show that I want to be part of this kind of, um, this kind of respectful civil dialogue, which I'm like, okay, yeah, let's come up with something. Um, 
we're going to film festivals. We're in, um, we've got, uh, five different film festivals coming up and we're hearing from more all the time, which is awesome. And, um, then we have a, a distributor who will, who's working to get it available on streaming, um, hopefully by late summer so that more, more people can see this. So all those things are like a job <laughs> in terms of the work of getting a documentary out. But I mean, the good news is, is that, I mean, I've been, you know, when you're making something in an edit room, when you're watching the cuts a million times, you never know what people are going to think afterwards. Right. And, um, it's been, it has been one of the joys of my life, you know, other than my, my two children, and, you know, my husband and, um, those kinds of things. But like, it's been a joy to see how this has affected people in a really positive way and help them like have hope about our country, which, you know, I'm super, I'm super bullish on America. You know, I think we can do this. (laughs) Yeah, Um, I am too. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So hold on. I feel like I just lost my train of thought. Oh, okay. So I kind of asked this question to Beth. And I want to ask you a a kind of different equivalent of this question. Um, I asked him about what, what is the, what should the relationship be? And what has this taught him, especially how the role that like the media and social media has played in this toxic polarization? How does that, how does that define for him the relationship between liberalism and technology? And like, what does that mean? What has this taught him? But I kind of, want to ask you the same thing, but not necessarily just liberalism, but, but communication and showing people ideas through media, because that's what you've been doing. That's your career. And so how has this kind of affected the way that you see your job? Um, obviously part of it is that you created this documentary, so (laughs) it might be a little bit of a silly question, but I feel like it's a, it's an important one. Well, I think, I mean, in terms of the media, like you know, writ large, right? Like, I think that, I think that we all have a responsibility to be curious and to ask questions, right? Um, I, I don't think anything is all good or all bad. Um, you know, it, I wouldn't be like, you know, just, you know, get rid of all your social media. No, social media is awesome. You know, think about how great it is to, to connect with people or share ideas or, um, or, you know, um, share the things you care about, you know, that's lovely. Um, and, and it's it's not even that you shouldn't share about politics. I think politics are great, but I think we want to keep, um, and this is, this is the line I'm going to steal straight from Ben. I mean, we want to be responsible. We, we need to keep politics in our place, um, politics in its place. You know, you want to make sure that you aren't just like sitting in front of a computer screen or on your phone all the time. Um, because that's a way that you can kind of lose track of the things that really matter in life. Um, you know, it's interesting. The other thing I, I do wish people would think about vis-a-vis like journalism is to to be to be thoughtful consumers of journalism. Um, you know, I was kind of brought up in this journalistic way where it's like 
you really, I, I was challenged constantly at 2020 to make sure that the stories that I was reflecting were actually, you know, were, were reflecting broader trends or were accurate reflections, or if they weren't, that we qualified them in that way, you know, as an outlier. Um, and I feel like that kind of journalistic responsibility has been a little bit muddied. Um, and, and so I think just thinking about who does the writing um, and what they're saying and, and how do they respect their audience is, is something that I, I, hope, I hope consumers of media are thinking about. Yeah, that's great. I wish we could talk about this for forever, right? Because <laughs> you can you can have me back on, Juliet. <laughs> yeah, no, I would love to. Um, but I have one question for you right now left. Yeah. yeah. Um, what is one thing that you believed at one time in your life that you later changed your position on, and why? Other than the fact that you might never produce a documentary. <laughs> what is one thing that I believed in my life that I changed my position on? Well, I mean, when I was, when I was younger, I would say I, I more believed that, um, I more believed that compromise was a cop-out and now I actually believe that compromise is like part of this human process that we go to go through where we actually get the best from each other and generally end up with something better at the end of the day. Um, and that's something I learned from, um, thinkers on both sides of the aisle, actually. Um, you know, as a libertarian, you kind of can, can think like, Oh, if, if only everyone would listen to me, then the world would be perfect. I actually, I, I don't think that that's, that's really the way forward anymore. Not that I don't think that like, um, you know, having principles and having ideas don't matter. I do. I just think that, um, I think that the marketplace of ideas exists because, you know, markets actually involve inherently people, you know, a give and take. And, and that's kind of the beauty of the whole thing. So that's definitely something that I, I have changed my, my position on over the years. Yeah, it it is beautiful. Um, I, I guess I, I lied. I kind of have another question, <laughs> <laughs> but it's related, so it's okay. <laughs> is that um? So so you said it, it's still important for us to have our principles, mm -hmm. but is that because in a way the 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 world and the society we live in is kind of this aggregation of all of us, right? So so. Yeah. Is it kind of that it's not, not a community built thing or, or a representative mm. thing if we each have our way? Well, I mean, I guess it's not possible for all of us to have our way. Or <laughs> to me, there's a level of maybe I'm not entirely right. Like, I think I'm right, but there's a level of humility there. So I don't know. Where does yeah. it come from? Yeah. For you? I mean, to me, I'm, I, the principles that I'm talking about are principles like, of liberalism, really, you know, principles around like me having my, the right to say to experience free speech means I have to have a, a lot, a high degree of tolerance, you know, that's like a, a, a for what other people are going to say. That's like a liberal value in, in my, in my view. Um, 
me believing that other people really can do whatever they want so long as they don't hurt people and don't take their stuff, you know, that's like a, that's a liberal principle that, that I adhere to. Although sometimes, um, I could probably be convinced that there are situations where, where we need to think about, think about, um, compromise there too. Um, I don't know. That's what I mean by principles. Um, it was the other president. So do I think we all like exist in this big cacophony of this milieu of humanity? Yeah. And I think that that's, that's kind of our journey, right? Is then like, how do we, how do we all embrace that with, and I think humility, that, that word in your question is, is exactly the right thinking, you know, how do we, how do we have the curiosity to know um, that we don't know everything and the, the bravery to truly listen to people um, and consider, and we can still end up where we want to end up, but like, but to really consider um, other people's viewpoints. I think, I think the power in that cannot be overstated. Um, And I think if we as individuals and are willing to really engage with the fellow people in our community on that level, I mean, I actually think the goodness we could create in the world can't be underestimated. Once again, I'd like to thank my guests for their time and insight. I'd also like to thank you for listening to The Great Antidote podcast. It means a lot. The Great Antidote is sound engineered by Rich Goyette. If you have any questions, any guests, or topic recommendations, please feel free to reach out to me at greatantidote at libertyfund.org. Thank you.